This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. Hi, folks. Before we start the show, I want to ask for your help. If you enjoy Kick-Ass Politics, I hope you'll help us reach our goal of raising our full production budget for 2016 by donating on our website at kickasspolitics.com or at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics. Thanks for listening, and now enjoy the show. I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass Politics. If you listened to my recent episodes with futurist Dr. Michio Kaku or Alec Ross, the author of Industries of the Future, you might have noticed that the subject of cyber war and cybersecurity is increasingly coming up as one of the biggest issues, opportunities, and concerns of the 21st century. And it brings with it a lot of big questions, like, should a cyber attack be considered an act of war? What if that cyber attack came not directly from a foreign government, but from a private citizen in that country? Is a cyber attack that degrades or destroys another country's physical infrastructure fair game? If a foreign power launches a cyber attack on a U.S. company such as the Sony hack in 2014, is that an attack on the United States as a country? And should the U.S. government be the one to retaliate? And if so, what would that response look like? These aren't new conversations, but for most of the past 50 years, they've been taking place in the shadows of government at the NSA, the CIA, the Pentagon, and on and off again in the White House. It's chronicled in a new book by my guest today, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Fred Kaplan. He's a national security reporter for Slate.com, and he's the best-selling author of several books, including more recently, The Insurgents, David Petraeus and the Plot to Change the American Way of War, and his newest book, Dark Territory, The Secret History of Cyber War. Today we'll discuss why it took Washington decades to take cyber threats seriously and how a computer pioneer and a Matthew Broderick film led President Ronald Reagan to sign the first presidential directive on cybersecurity. Fred Kaplan will reveal how the 2010 cyber attack that damaged Iranian nuclear facilities might have opened up a Pandora's box that we won't be able to close. We'll get an idea of just how much U.S. cyber teams are capable of. We'll weigh the cyber arms race between the U.S. and China. And we'll speculate on how the FBI managed to hack the iPhones of the San Bernardino shooters. All that and more coming up with national security reporter Fred Kaplan in just a moment. Hollywood to Washington, it's time for Kick-Ass Politics. And now here's your host, Ben Mathis. I'm joined over the phone by Fred Kaplan. He's a national security columnist for Slate and author of a new book called Dark Territory, The Secret History of Cyber War. Fred, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks. Well, the book is just 
really fascinating and on some levels disturbing. And in it, you cover the 50-year history of U.S. cyber war. And mm -hmm. one thing that becomes clear is that a lot of the conversations we're having very recently have been going on since the very birth of the Internet or really its predecessor to the Internet, which was ARPANET. And one of the key figures in this story is an interesting character named Willis Ware. Who was Willis Ware? Willis Ware was uh, a computer pioneer. I mean, he, he was working with John von Neumann at Princeton in the 40s on the first electronic computer. And uh, when the ARPANET, as you say, the precursor to the Internet, was about to go up in, in 1967, he was the head of the computer science department of the RAND Corporation. He was also on the scientific advisory board to the National Security Agency. And he wrote a paper. It was classified secret at the time. It's been declassified since. And basically, he said, look, uh, the problem is when you put information on a network, when there is access online, I think he might have been the first person to use that word, online. When there's online access from multiple unsecured locations, then you're not going to be able to keep things secure. You're creating inherent vulnerabilities. You're not, you're not going to be able to keep secrets anymore. When I was doing my research, I talked with the head of the ARPANET project. I asked him if he'd read Willis Ware's paper. He said, sure, I, yeah, I knew Willis. And I said, well, what'd you think? And he said he took it to the team. And I, I interviewed a couple of people on the team, too, who verified the story. And they said, oh, God, don't. Don't saddle us with the security requirement. Look how hard it is to, to look. Look how hard it is to do just what we've done. It's like asking the Wright brothers to to make sure that the first plane can carry twenty people for fifty miles. Let's take this <laughs> one step at a time. And besides, the Russians aren't going to be able to do anything like this for decades. Well, you know, it did take decades—two and a half to three decades—by which time whole systems and networks had grown up with no provision for security whatsoever. So I, I see this as sort of the, the bitten apple in the digital Garden of Eden. It was there and understood and forecast from the very, very beginning. Yeah, and it's funny because this is a program that was invented by U.S. military, but it doesn't seem to dawn on that many people that we probably want to secure this thing. <laughs> yeah, well, no, you're right. I mean, as I said, Willis Ware was on the Scientific Advisory Board of the NSA. He knew... Now, this was before computers, you know, the 60s. And even when, when there were a few computers, they were hooked up by phone lines, phone modems. And uh, he knew that the U.S. was hacking into phone networks of the Soviet Union, China, North Vietnam. You know, the Vietnam War was going on. And he understood and was one of the first to understood what a lot of people realized gradually later, that if we can do this to them, they can do it to us, too. Maybe not now, but someday soon. So we have to uh, we have to figure out a way to protect ourselves. Yeah, and you open the book with a pretty interesting story of how Willis Ware directly inspired a movie, that, and then that movie, in turn, directly inspired the first presidential directive on cybersecurity. You want yeah, to tell this, us about that? Yeah, this was one of my most startling finds. Uh, in the first weekend of June of 1983, President Ronald Reagan is up at Camp David and, you know, doing what presidents usually do in Camp David. And he watched a lot of movies. So 
that Saturday night he's watching War Games. It just came out. War Games, you might remember, it was the, the movie starring Matthew yeah. Broderick as this tech oh, yeah, teenager who unwittingly hacks into the computer of the North American Air Defense Command and thinking that he's just playing some new online game called Global Thermonuclear War, uh, <laughs> almost sets off World War III. So Reagan's back in the White House the following Wednesday. There's a big meeting of his national security staff and some people from the Hill. Now, not on this subject, on something completely different, but he can't get this movie out of his mind. And at one point, he puts down his index cards and says, has anybody seen this movie, War Games? Nobody's seen it. You know, just come out. So he, he launches into this very detailed plot summary. And, and people are looking around, kind of suppressing a smile or rolling their eyeballs. You know, where's the old man going with this? <laughs> and he turns to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General John Vesey, and says, General, could, could something like this really happen? And the general says, I'll look into it, Mr. President. And he comes back a week later and he says, Mr. President, the problem is much worse than you think. Now, as a result of that, about 10 months later, there was the first presidential directive on computer security. And it reads exactly like a lot of things you're reading today. It warns of, of our growing dependence on computers and networks and the vulnerability of electronic interference by foreign agents and criminals and terrorists. Now, it takes a step. The NSA gets involved in writing this directive, and they basically write it so that the NSA is going to be controlling the security of all computers in the United States. Well, some people on the Hill don't like this, and, and they, they rewrite it. But, uh, so it, the issue disappears for a while, but, but the point is that all the controversies that we're seeing today, uh, the, the vulnerability of our systems, the, the tensions between security and civil liberties, the rivalries between the NSA and other networks of government, other agencies of government, branches of government, it's all there. Back in 1983, propelled by Ronald Reagan watching a movie and asking a question that made everybody in the room roll their eyeballs. Now, you asked about Willis Ware's involvement in this. The, the two guys who wrote that movie, uh, they wanted it to, to be kind of authentic. So they lived in Santa Monica. They called the Rand Corporation, the public affairs office. That office puts them in touch with Willis Ware, who turns out to be this very nice guy, very candid, very game. And he tells them, uh, you know, it's funny. I designed the software for that computer that you're talking about. And you're right. It is a closed system, but there's always some officer who wants to work at home on the weekend. So they leave a port open. So I guess, yeah, if some kid, accidentally dialed that number, he could get in. And then he leaned forward and he says, you know, one thing that people don't realize is that the only computer that's completely secure is a computer that no one can use. <laughs> and, you know, that's something that, that we all know now, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like he might have revealed more than he should have. But yeah, he <laughs> and luckily, have. they were just two <laughs> screenwriters. After that incident with Ronald Reagan, Mm -hmm. uh, he put, like you said, he put forth the first presidential directive and it just kind of ended up dying. And much of the problem, it seems, throughout the history of cyber warfare or cybersecurity is that the private sector is so intertwined with our government and defense communications that the government has been very reticent to compel companies to do what they need to do to upgrade their protections. 
is the right. is the threat significant enough that lawmakers need to get past these libertarian concerns about government interference and just do this? In the Clinton administration, when this became a very serious issue, and when hacking uh, really started proliferating from from Russia and other countries, uh, there were some White House aides who wanted to impose mandatory security requirements, not on everybody, but at least on what was called critical infrastructure, like transportation, energy, uh, you know, energy grids banking and financing, waterworks, that sort of thing, things that a society depends on that were owned by private companies, but that were hooking everything they had up to the Internet because it was cheaper and more efficient, and the Internet was was hackable. So they wanted to to impose mandatory cybersecurity requirements on these guys, but they resisted uh, because it would cost money, it would slow down the networks, they resisted, lobbyists resisted, and even uh, you know, other White House economic advisors and Department of Commerce and Treasury opposed it because it would make these companies less competitive in, in foreign markets. So, yeah, there, there was no incentive for them to do anything, and nobody was making them do anything. Is that still an issue at this point? It is. It is. Well, I'd say the banking and finance industry has done quite a bit. I mean, you still read about you know, hacks into credit card companies and banks occasionally. But there are hacking attempts thousands a day. Very few of them get in. And, and the reason why, I mean, think about it. What, what do banks do? They want your money and they need your trust. And so if they're getting hacked all the time. They're not going to get either. And they also have a lot of money. So they can spend hundreds of millions of dollars hiring right. the best people and updating their networks and, and keeping them monitored all the time. But say like an electrical power grid, this is like a... I was going to say, it's very much the same thing, the same issue that I've heard with securing the grid. It's private companies that are the ones resisting it. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's a private company. Uh, It's a sideshow. Again, nobody is making them do it. They, They get the sense that if they spent tens of millions of dollars making changes... Maybe the bad guys would figure out a way around that within a month or a year, and they'd have to do it all over again. They've also calculated that the cost to them of repairing the damage after a major attack isn't that much more than the preventive measures, which Hmm. might not really prevent. And again, nobody's making them do this, and so they, they tend not to. They tend not to. Yeah, and throughout the book... It, it seems that we replay this Reagan scenario several times throughout the history of the Internet when every eight years we have some new president who says, hey, guys, you know, should we be worried about this cyber stuff? And yeah, suddenly one, one the Joint I, Chiefs and everyone's like, oh, crap. <laughs> so, yeah, one thing I do, I, I, I somebody compared it to, uh, you know, Groundhog Day, where, yeah. you know, each administration comes up with a plan, a cybersecurity plan, a directive, a commission a report, and they all read remarkably the same. In some cases, they're even written by the same people who are kind of hangovers from from the previous administration. Uh, There are, you know, President Obama has actually, he's instituted some things, signed some executive orders, some directives that go a little bit farther than his predecessors, but even his most recent executive order on the subject, which encourages 
uh, private industry to, to get with the game. There, there's one line in the middle of it which says nothing in this executive order should be interpreted as mandatory regulation. The, the industry is still horrified by the R word, yeah. regulation. So they're more horrified by that than by the prospect of having their circuits blown out. Well, what was the turning point where we started taking this seriously, or have we yet to reach that point? No, it, a, a turning point, there have been a few turning points. Uh, the big one, though, the big pivot happened in 1997. Uh, there was a new director of the NSA, a three-star Air Force general named Ken Minahan, who isn't really covered at all in previous books about the NSA. But he had been the commander of something called the Air Force Information Warfare Center. And he was very aware of the vulnerability of networks, both on the offense and defensive side. He was very frustrated that his uh, fellow generals didn't take it seriously at all. So when he became director of the NSA, he created a war game called Eligible Receiver. And in this game, 25 elite hackers who worked for the NSA would hack into the Defense Department's network. But it was kept very secret. Only, the only people who knew that it was happening were the people doing the hacking and uh, the Secretary of Defense, and some lawyers, including the Attorney General. It was very serious. They'd set aside two weeks for this game to play out, and within four days, these 25 guys using commercially available equipment had hacked into the entire Defense Department's network, except for the Army. Wow. The Army decided not to play the game, because they weren't <laughs> interested, and they knew that they were vulnerable as hell. So they didn't play but everybody else got thoroughly hacked into. I mean, in some cases, you know, the NSA guys just left, left a little marker, like Kilroy was here. But in other cases, they, they, they shut down fax machines. They, they got into people's passwords, distorted emails, sent false messages, intercepted real messages. Nobody knew they were being hacked, but they knew that something was wrong and they couldn't trust what they were seeing on their systems. And uh, when it was revealed that this hack had taken place, I mean, they even hacked into the National Military Command Center, which is the pipe between the president and the secretary of defense for declaring war. Yeah, and that was really interesting to me, how you had these red teams who were performing what they thought were just elaborate exercises <laughs> to hack the Pentagon, and then only to get there and realize, hey, wait a minute, somebody else has been here already. Oh, yeah, that, that was in this war game when... <laughs> And this wasn't revealed in, in, in all but the most secret briefings about it. But while the NSA was inside the Defense Department's network roaming around, they found some French IPs roaming around, too, real ones. So it had already begun even then. Yeah, and, and there was one in there, I think, uh, during the Clinton administration, when we were contemplating going back into Iraq, they had a hack and I guess everyone was assuming, everyone thought for some reason that it was probably Saddam Hussein behind it. And didn't it turn out to be like two 16-year-old kids yeah, in, in Sacramento kids in or California something? California coached by an 18-year-old in, in Israel, just kind of messing around. And, you know, that was, it, was, it was an operation called Solar Sunrise. And some, some people, after it was revealed that it was just a couple of kids, said, oh, whew, it was just a couple of kids. But other people said, well, wait a minute, if a couple of kids can do this, what can a nation state do? And then right after that came, they called it Moonlight Maze, which was the first 
known hack into serious military networks uh, by the Russians. And then a couple years later, the Chinese started doing it. And right. as I said, all along, we'd been doing similar things to them as well. Yeah. Well, speaking of us doing it to them, you reveal in the book, U.S. cyber teams were some of the unsung heroes behind the surge in Iraq. Yeah. What did they do to help turn the tide? Well, you know, remember in the Iraq war around 2007, that there was at least tactically uh, a, a turnaround. Uh, casualties, the American casualties started going way down. Uh, the insurgents took a real retreat. Uh, and, and people have attributed this to, you know, George Bush's surge or General David Petraeus's counterinsurgency strategy. And, and those played some role. But, but it also involved, as I found out, uh, the involvement of the NSA. Around this time, uh, guys going out on patrol started capturing computers the insurgents' computers. They sent it back to Fort Meade, NSA headquarters. They would hack into that. They, they found passwords, email networks, intelligence. And so they decided, well, let's set up a little NSA base inside Iraq, right there on the spot. And over a period of a few years, there were 6,000 NSA analysts who went to Iraq. 22 of them were killed by roadside bombs going out on, on search expeditions for computers along with the troops. So they would do something like this. They would, they would hack into the networks. And by the way, this operation had to be approved by the president. All cyber offensive operations have to be approved by the president. So they did this thing where they would send out a phony email to a lot of insurgents, basically saying, let's meet at such and such a place tomorrow at 4 o'clock. So the bad guys would come there at 4 o'clock, and waiting for them would be some special operations forces who would, who would kill them. Also, wow. uh, you know, their drones, surveillance drones, would see people planting roadside bombs, which at the time were the biggest source of American fatalities. Uh, they would follow the guys, and then because the NSA was right there on the, on the ground, they, they could follow them on the spot and uh, kill them within like a minute. So... In 2007, these kinds of techniques wound up killing 4,000 insurgents and not only killed them, but also kind of messed with their heads. Uh, they would get an email message and they would wonder, is this our guys saying that we should meet at such and such a place tomorrow? Or are these the Americans uh, trying to trick us again? So it led to turmoil and distrust within the insurgents' ranks. Yeah. So it, it, it played a major role in, uh, in turning things around. Yeah, and that's throughout the book, that's a big part of this, is the strategy of creating confusion among mm -hmm. the enemy. Before the term cyber war took place, uh, people called it counter-command control warfare, mm -hmm. or the biggest one until cyber warfare, information warfare. You know, messing with the guy's information. Uh, and, you know, if you can't trust your information, then your, your command goes to pieces. Well, you know, when we sent them these emails, did we pose as Nigerian princes or something? Did we <laughs> yeah. ask for their credit yeah. card no, number? That would have been good. Get, get some money out of them while we were doing it. Well, so they, 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 you know, the NSA also has linguists. So they had right. people who, they had, who had studied the email that they were actually sending each other yeah. and, and duplicating the, the, the style, the linguistic style, the uh, the. the words that's yeah well that's amazing stuff 
Well, we're going to take a quick break, and then in the second half, I'll talk with Fred Kaplan about what those mad geniuses at the NSA might be up to now and recent events in cyber war straight out of today's headlines. Back in just a moment. If you're interested in my conversation with Fred Kaplan, then you'll enjoy his new book, Dark Territory, The Secret History of Cyber War. And right now, you can download the audio version of that book for free with a special promotion just for our listeners from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook download, which can be Dark Territory by my guest today, Fred Kaplan, or any of Audible's 180,000 titles. That's audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or click on the sponsor link on our webpage to download the free audiobook of your choice. And now, back to the show. We're back, and I'm talking with Fred Kaplan, author of Dark Territory, The Secret History of Cyber War. Um, Fred, we talk a lot about asymmetric warfare, and obviously when it comes to tanks and bombs, America has the advantage over our enemies. But is cyber less asymmetric than other traditional warfare? No, it's probably more asymmetric because on the one hand, uh, we can do this you know, cyber offensive and even cyber defensive a lot better than other countries. So, for example, you know, to, 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 do or to invoke a metaphor, we have better and more agile rocks that we can throw at other houses. Mm-hmm. But we're living in a much glassier house. Much more of our society, economy, military is plugged into computer networks. We are much more vulnerable. Even another country or or non-state actor who is not as skilled as our guys are at doing this sort of thing can still do tremendous damage because of, of how vulnerable we are. I mean... For example, you know, you, you get in the mail a lot. You know, you get something, you know, join our smart grid. Well, what is a right. smart grid? Basically, it's, you know, it's a very extended grid, and it's con- controlled by computers. And so, you know, if one part of a region has a power, an energy surplus, they can divert some of, this, uh, some of the power to an area which has a, a power shortage at the time. Yeah, it's a great idea. But because it's all done by computer networks, those networks can be hacked into. The military, I mean, this is actually something I found out after I finished this book. So this is sort of like the bonus reel on a a DVD. (laughs) But but the Navy is now training its officers on ships to use sextants to navigate by the stars, just in case during a war, the data link with GPS satellites is disrupted. So, you know, our, our qualitative advantage in the military, is, is much of it is based on things that are hooked up to computers. So if those get hacked, then, you know, we're in deep trouble. We go back to, uh, to a much earlier style of warfare. Yeah, and I wonder if there's a lot of that going on right now, of the military preparing people to go back to the Stone Age, if necessary, and, you know, de-link from yeah. from the internet and everything, but and be able to be self sufficient. But, but the industrial age, <laughs> yeah, 
instead right. of the post conductor. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, no, there's also, there was a, a Defense Science Board report in the Pentagon a few years ago, which concluded that, um, you know, it, it referred to the inherent vulnerability of our architecture. The inherent vulnerability. This goes back to what Willis Ware was saying. You're inherently vulnerable. And they basically concluded that, you know, yeah, let's still keep trying to make better locks and things like that, but we have to accept that the bad guys are going to get in. And so they said what we really need to be concentrating on is detection and resilience. In other words, make sure that if somebody does get in, we know really quickly and yeah. make sure that we can repair the damage and, and recover as quickly as possible. So that, that's, that's what it's come down to. They've, you know, when I was working on this book, friends would ask me, you know, well, what should I do to make my computer more secure? What are you doing? And I would say, look, you know, if all you're, if what you're trying to do is to keep some criminal or just troublemaker out of your bank account or your Netflix password or whatever, there are things you can do, you know, and, and they're pretty effective. Yeah. But if somebody is really wanting to get something that you have and they're really good at it, and especially if they have the, the resources and wherewithal of a nation state, there, there's really not much you can do. Yeah. Well, as a follow-up to that, I want to ask you something that I asked Michael Hayden a few weeks ago. If our adversaries like China have a, a quote-unquote hiring process <laughs> that consists of hunting down the best hackers, ripping them mm -hmm. out of their beds, putting a gun to their head and saying, you're working for us now, how does the U.S. compete if America has to actually rely on recruiting talent out of their own free will. Does that put us yeah. at a disadvantage? It's hard. I mean, you know, there is a, uh, a, a unit in the NSA, which Hayden had something to do with creating when he was director of NSA, called the Tailored Access Operations Office. This is sort of like the, the, the digital equivalent of the CIA black bags operations. Huh. You know, the president says, I want to get inside this guy's email or I want to bust up these Iranian centrifuges. Or it, it's TAO that gets this done. And these are really smart people. Most of them are mathematicians. Some of them, you know, they have this program now with scholarship. You go someplace, you get four years of a college education, you take really high-tech math courses, and you then you owe the NSA four years of your life. Oh. Uh, oh. But, yeah, there are, you know, you think every bank... Every software company, uh, they're hiring guys just like this. They need guys like this, too, and they can pay a lot more money. Yeah. And, and it is becoming a problem, and the NSA is looking for, um, and by the way, not just the NSA, but, but other branches and divisions that do similar kinds of things. They're looking to create a new model of personnel. I mean, it used to be back in the Cold War, you know, you'd go to work for the CIA or the NSA or something like that right out of college, and you'd be there the whole career. Yeah. But, you know, that doesn't work anymore. So they're looking for maybe a way to, to, to kind of set a new norm where mid-career for four or five years, you come work for the government. And then you go back. And maybe the government will help pay, uh, or maybe the industries will help defray some of the difference 
between what these guys were making and what they are making. Uh-huh. But uh, right. I, I, I don't get the impression that, that these agencies are failing to do what they're supposed to do because of a shortage of personnel. And then okay. also, you know, there's this thing, you know, for example, with, with the Apple FBI case now, right. some of these companies act as, um, you know, act on a bounty basis, you know, for specific projects. Interesting. They will say, hey, there's a vulnerability in, in this case, in this Apple phone or in this Cisco router or in this Microsoft operating system. And, uh, you know, the companies appreciate this. They close them up. Apple, by the way, is one of the few companies that doesn't pay bounties, which may be why the guys who who uh, succeeded in, in opening up Syed Farouk's phone went to the FBI instead. But, uh, you know, there's already a little bit of this freelancing from private industry going on. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, yeah, since you brought it up, apparently, I guess the FBI got tired of waiting and just said, screw you, Apple. We're going to do this on our own. Did they well, really no, do it on their own? Happened. or No, that's not quite what happened. Yeah, okay. Well, so, yeah, I think what really listen. happened is, look, here's the thing. If this phone, if, if there was reason to believe that this phone had something in it that we needed to get to right away for some national security purpose, there's a procedure for this. The FBI could have filled out what's called a request for technical assistance. Hmm. Send it to the NSA. The NSA would have hacked into the phone, and they know how to do this kind of thing on their own. Now, they then couldn't look at anything that came out of it. They'd have to turn it over to the FBI right away. Okay. But they've done this before. They have, I've talked with people who have filled out requests for technical assistance to the NSA in similar kinds of situations. Huh. Uh, so what's really going on is that the FBI, the Justice Department, wants to strengthen its authorities for, for, for getting information that is now getting oh. harder to get. A, okay, a so context, it was a legal play, context. basically. There has been complicity between telecoms and intelligence and national security, law enforcement, going back a century. In the, in the 1920s, there was a U.S. intelligence agency that persuaded Western Union to give them access to all the telegraphs going in and out of the country. When, when telephones came up, AT&T cooperated all the time with the FBI and the NSA to tap phones. During the internet age, it got even more uh, mutually beneficial. I mean, say you're Microsoft or a company like that, you want to sell your wares to the Defense Department. It has to be vetted for security. Who vets it? A, a, a division of the NSA called the Information Assurance Directorate. So when Microsoft presented its first Windows operating system to this bureau, they found 1,500 points of vulnerability. Now, they helped Microsoft patch them. Well, not all of them, most of them. They left a few holes so that when the Russians or whoever bought the operating system, they knew where they could, they knew where they could hack in. There was a back door left open. And, uh, you know, the, the, the companies were fine with this. When the Snowden revelations happened, everybody was outraged. You know, I, I liken it to that scene in Casablanca where Captain Renault is yeah. shocked, shocked yeah. that there's gambling going on here while the croupier is delivering his winnings for the night, you know? <laughs> yeah. So basically, Apple, which has always been reluctant to cooperate with the government, in fairness to Tim Cook, and 
although they, they have responded to court orders on at least 70 occasions to unlock a phone. They've been trying to put an end to this. And so as encryption is getting harder, the FBI was looking for a case, a test case, where, which would allow them to reassert their authorities. And this case looked like a good one. You know, there's no Fourth Amendment issue. The, yeah. Yeah. Cypher didn't own this phone. The county, San Bernardino County did. Right. And they gave, they, they gave consent. There's no privacy issue. The guy's dead. And it's not just some two-bit thug. It's a, it's a mass murderer who's associated with a terrorist group. So, no, the FBI wanted to go ahead with this trial. Okay. But the law that they were invoking, which is the 1789 All Writs Act, there's one exception to it. It's that the, uh, somebody they're trying to get to cooperate doesn't have to cooperate if there is any other way to get at this stuff. <laughs> and when this Israeli company you know, raises its hand and say, hey, we have a way of doing this where you don't need Apple's cooperation, then the FBI had to drop the case because they could no, they could no longer apply the All Writs Act. Oh, so they wanted to pursue okay. this as a lawsuit. Right, because they wanted to set a legal precedent They wanted, for they the wanted a, a good test case to provide a new precedent uh, for them to demand that companies weaken their encryption in situations where they needed to get the information. Well, yeah, and we know about certain hacks like the Stuxnet virus mm -hmm. that screwed up the centrifuges in Iran. Yeah. Uh, there were the Russian cyber attacks on Estonia and Georgia, the cyber attack mm -hmm. that shut down the Internet in North Korea for 10 hours. Those yeah. are the ones we do know about. But do you think that there are a lot of hacks that we don't ever find out about? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure of it. Um, I mean, Stuxnet was discovered accidentally because the Israelis, it was a U.S.-Israeli joint operation and the Israelis tried to expand it and the, and the bug got out. It started affecting other computer systems that were similar to those controlling the speed of the Iranian centrifuges. Now, it was programmed in a way that it wouldn't damage those other servers, but security companies detected this, this funny worm and they diagnosed it as they should. And then the Iranians caught on, oh, that's why our, our centrifuges are, are exploding. So, no, there are things like this going on all the time. There are, um, <clears throat> you know, President Obama signed a presidential directive on cyber <clears throat> operations, which laid forth much more explicitly than any president before him uh, the procedures for various agencies to follow when they wanted to, con to conduct a cyber offensive operation, and it was uh, implied in this uh, directive and in some follow-on documents that uh, this would be not quite routine, but something that would happen fairly often. If, you know, it's been announced, uh, some, uh, Secretary of Defense Ashton Carter said that we are engaged in some cyber operations against ISIS. I don't know what they are. Uh, I would assume that they're similar to the operations that I that we talked about a few minutes ago that 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 the NSA was doing against um, the insurgents in the 2007 Iraq War. If we're not doing stuff like that, you know, yeah. as a citizen, I'd want to know why. Why are right, we doing right. this kind of thing?
I mean, are uh, we talking about like, of, are we talking about like one, hacking one uh, their about, social media and uh, saying, yeah. you know, putting out a fatwa that says uh, everyone in ISIS should be gay now or something? Something, something like a little more, a little more subtle than that. Oh, but, okay. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, one thing about President Obama and his whole philosophy toward use of force. He's very leery of doing things that might put tens of thousands of American soldiers on the ground. Mm-hmm. But he's not so leery on doing things that, A, might have some benefit, B, don't involve a lot of risk. And this is why he's been uh, quite keen on drone strikes, although he has scaled back on those as you know a lot of civilians were getting killed in them. But cyber is like, man, cyber operations are Barack Obama's dream use of, of military force, right? I mean, yeah. it's invisible. It doesn't commit you. It doesn't weigh you down. It doesn't kill anybody. If you can accomplish something through that means, it's, it's the cat's pajamas. Yeah. The argument for the, from the military perspective is, you know, this is ideal. If we can shut down people's radars and their infrastructure without even launching a single missile or risking mm-hmm. a single life, then that's amazing. But yeah. we now know that the U.S. developed the Stuxnet worm that was the culprit behind the sabotage of the Iranian centrifuges. And that kind of takes it to another level because you talk yeah. about in the a chapter appropriately called Crossing the Rubicon, um, how we've now perhaps set a dangerous precedent where any physical infrastructure is fair game and there are no rules. Exactly. You know, we've been worrying for decades about the vulnerability of our critical infrastructure. What was Stuxnet? It was us damaging someone else's critical infrastructure. Now, you know, it also set back a nuclear project, but still that's what it did. It was the first time that a country used a computer program to damage not another country's computer, but to destroy a physical object. And this is, this, is a, this is, I think, where things get dangerous. What we have now, you know, in 2009, they created, we created something called U.S. Cyber Command. It is a combat command. It works with other combat commands. It has war plans. It has target sets. It has drills. It has exercises. It's probably also doing stuff. It is commanded by the same four-star admiral or general who directs the NSA. It is the same technology. It is the same personnel. It is the same set of skills. But all this has, well, let me cut out that but. All of this has risen, and it's technologically sophisticated. The command procedures are mature. But all this has happened without any discussion of really basic policy, basic strategy. There is a defense science board in the Pentagon, a panel meeting in the Pentagon right now, writing the first report on cyber deterrence. Nobody knows what cyber deterrence is. What are you trying to deter? Should the government have a role in deterring or responding to a cyber attack on a bank, on three banks, on six banks? And if you do strike back, what do you strike back at? You know, when, when the first atomic bombs were used, you know, back at the end of World War II, right away, everybody could see what it did. It was known that it was made of uranium. Everybody, you could, you could look up what countries had uranium. 
And so people who have a more strategic bent, who didn't necessarily have security clearances, started thinking and writing papers about how does this new weapon on our midst alter the nature of warfare? Uh, can you use this weapon just like you use other weapons in war? Or is this something fundamentally different? And if it is, how do we deter against this? All of the stuff with cyber weapons, cyber espionage, cyber war has been, has been ensconced in places like the NSA, where people have very high security clearances. And these things have been kept so secret until very recently that strategic-minded outsiders don't know enough even to talk about it on a basic level. And so you've had this technology rising up but no undergirding policy or strategy. You have the technology driving the strategy, not the other way around. So that, that's, that's the real danger, is that we could get into a real war right. that might start out not even looking like a war, and nobody has really thought about how to prevent this or how to execute it to the next step. Right, and it does seem that throughout a lot of this history, that we've kind of been purposely avoiding the question because we didn't really want to deal with it. We wanted to be, have a free hand to do what we wanted or needed to do. Do we want to have some kind of a Geneva Convention on cyber, or is that something that we still want to avoid? Well, you know, it's interesting. When, when Robert Gates first became Secretary of Defense, you know, it was the last two years of Bush and the first two years of Obama, he'd be getting these daily briefings uh, you know, about these hacks into the Defense Department and defense industries. And he would talk with some of his colleagues and he would say, you know, he would say exactly what you said. We need to get together with the other cyber powers and figure out some rules of the road. And, and you know, he, he worked in the CIA all through the Cold War. He said, you know, even in the darkest days of the Cold War, there were rules. The Americans and the Russians had rules. For example, we, we don't kill each other's spies, that kind of thing. Yeah. We need to set up some rules of the road, you know, like what kinds of targets we will not go after with cyber stuff. And then he said, and this is where the title of my book comes from, he said, we need to set some rules because we are wandering in dark territory here. Now, when I went back through my notes and saw that, I knew that was going to be the title of my book. But, but I wanted, you know, I, I Googled the terms to make sure that, you know, it wasn't some euphemism for a pornographic act or something. <laughs> and, and I saw that it was a term of art in the North American railroad industry to designate huh. a stretch of track that is unguided by signals. And I'm thinking, wow, that's, that's a very powerful metaphor for cyberspace. So I, I sent an email to Gates and I asked him if he knew this. And he said, oh, sure. My grandfather was a station master with the Santa Fe Railroad in Pratt, Kansas for 50 years. We use railroad terminology around the house all the time. But that is the situation where we're yeah. in. Uh, dark territory. We don't, you know, the engineers are invisible. The attacks can be instantaneous. Uh, and if there is a major attack or a clash of, of two trains, so to speak, yeah. it, it, it's, it's going to cause a lot more damage than, than two real trains that might smack into each other in, in the dead of night. Before we go, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's private servers 
would you assume that those servers have probably been hacked by someone at some point? Well, we know they tried. I mean, they, they've even looked at logs that, you know, they they have detected some, some phishing expeditions. You know, you get these all the time. Somebody sends you an email and there's right. an attachment. If, if, you, if you click on the attachment, you download malware. Uh, she never did click on the attachment, but it's it's been traced back. Some of these came from Russian servers. Yeah. Uh, wow. So, yeah, it was silly. But, you know, one thing, just not to get into a big political discussion, but truly, truly secure stuff, conversations between someone like the Secretary of State and someone else, they, they aren't done through email, not yeah. even the State Department's own encrypted email. They, they, okay. This is why the, the, the uh, investigators are going to have a hard time finding anything uh, really damaging on them. Okay. Well, that's somewhat reassuring then. <laughs> well, once again, the book is called Dark Territory, The Secret History of Cyber War by Fred Kaplan. Fred, thanks for talking with me. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks again to Fred Kaplan of Slate.com for coming on the show. And if you enjoyed today's episode, I'd encourage you to read his new book, Dark Territory, The Secret History of Cyber War. I'll include an Amazon link where you can order it in the show notes for this episode and on our website at kickasspolitics.com. Or if you'd prefer to listen to the audio version of his book, you can download that for free through that special trial offer just for our listeners at audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. You can follow Fred Kaplan on Twitter at FM Kaplan, that's F-M-K-A-P-L-A-N. Or you can read his column at slate.com or at fredkaplan.info. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass Politics on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at GoFundMe.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or click on the donate button on our website at kickasspolitics.com. Follow us on Twitter at at KAPolitics or visit Kickass Politics on Facebook. And while you're there, recommend Kick-Ass Politics to your friends on your social media. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickasspolitics.com. In the next episode, I'll talk with Emmy Award-winning historian and documentary filmmaker Ken Burns. You've seen his epic, multi-part historical documentaries on PBS, which covered everything from the Civil War and World War II to jazz and baseball. More recently, you might have seen his PBS special, The Roosevelt's, An Intimate History. Well, he has a new two-part documentary for PBS on baseball legend Jackie Robinson. And on the next episode, he'll talk about the contributions Jackie Robinson made to baseball and civil rights. Some of them you might know about, and some of them you might not. Coming up with filmmaker Ken Burns on the next podcast. But for now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass Politics.
Kick-Ass Politics is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.